Himalayas Studios. We mythologize work. We mythologize and fetishize success. Hmm. But one of the things, you know, that Putnam talks about is the third place and how bowling alone is the loss of that third place. It's the loss of that bowling league where people used to come together outside of work and outside of church, frankly. This is Maura Ahrens Mealy. She's an entrepreneur and she hosts the Anxious Achiever podcast. The Putnam she's talking about is Robert Putnam, perhaps best known for the book Bowling Alone. In the most reductive sense, the book is about building community and how hard it is to do that in a modern world. For me, that's my third place has been the internet. (laughs) (laughs) And it's been women's communities and it's been bloggers and now it's podcasting. Honestly, and I think that if you tend to be a sort of introspective, anxious, introverted, ruminating, solitary-ish person like I am, and it sounds like maybe you are, but who has a great desire to do good and a large ambition, like finding your home on the internet is transformative. And you can do good with that. I really believe it. From Elliot Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week how Maura Aaron's Mealy is bringing people together by breaking down mental health barriers. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Maura, uh, I want to start off by just telling you a couple of things about me. Mm-hmm. So I'm an extremely anxious person. And being an older millennial, uh, there's very little of my self-esteem that I think is separate from my professional success, uh, which is why the anxious achiever really resonates with me. So thank you for making it. Well, I, I want to thank you. I, I feel like every person who is a, a person who's well-known and well-respected in their industry who says things like you just said is 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 such a huge step forward you know I, I that sounds cheesy but it's so hard for me to get even to get successful people to go on the record mm. to talk about their anxiety and their mental health and um so so thank you <laughs> a <laughs> and um you know i have i've had clinical anxiety and depression diagnosed since i was 19 mm. and i'm 44 and so it's just been such a part of my life, you know, sometimes really, really crippling and mm. sometimes sort of manageable. But it, it's my, I travel with anxiety every day, you know, like yeah. you, it sounds like. And I never heard anyone 
talk about it who wasn't like a celebrity, you know, or yeah. wasn't writing a memoir. It, it always seemed like something that the people that I worked with every day and respected wouldn't talk about. And I yet I knew that that wasn't true. If you just look at the statistics of people who are on antidepressants in this yeah. country, you just do the math. And I, I wanted to start having those conversations. I was I was ready. I, I had nothing to lose. You know, I, I was sort of at a point in my life where I'm like, you know, I'm a privileged, white, heterosexual person who's reached a certain age and has a certain level of means and security in her career. Like, I'm going to talk about this. Well, walk me to the, the sort of biographical aspect of that. When, when in your life did you start wanting to talk about it, you know, in your profession and publicly? Whew. Only a few years ago. I, I really, I wrote a book about being an introvert. And I'm a, I am an introvert. Um, and it's called Hiding in the Bathroom because I, I have worked by myself in a in a way that a lot of creatives will resonate with, but in the corporate world was kind of weird. I, I left a pretty demanding corporate career in 2006 and, and started freelancing and working for myself and, and created a small business where I still mostly work from bed, you know, even before <laughs> the pandemic um, or in my home office. I call myself a hermit entrepreneur. And I always thought it was just because I was an introvert. You know, I didn't love being like, with people all day or doing office politics. So I wrote a book about being a successful introvert. What I learned along the way was I really have social anxiety. People who are happy introverts don't have near the level of angst <laughs> that I do when they have yeah. to pick up a phone or go to a meeting. You know, they sort of are like, well, this isn't my preferred way to spend the time, but I'm going to do it and then I'll go be by myself. And so I just, I always loved psychology. I actually have half a social work degree. I wanted to be a clinical therapist. I just couldn't figure out how to do it from a money perspective. So it was mm. always my passion. And it was really through writing the book and realizing, hey, I don't think being an introvert is the whole piece of this. I think it's really about anxiety and social anxiety. Mm. And again, going through the world as an anxious achiever. Mm. I, I remember hearing in one of the episodes that, um, that you also sort of experience anxiety in the lead-ups to conducting or uh, giving interviews. Um, mm -hmm. I just want to also like thank you for coming on the show. And <laughs> and I just want to say, I do have that. And, and, you and do? It's, yeah, it's sort of, it's not, it hasn't been debilitating for a couple of years now, but oftentimes like in the half hour running up to one of these recordings, I always get the sort of like pit feeling in my stomach. Like I'm about to like jump out of a plane. <laughs> do you ever feel the urge to cancel? All the time. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's not just with interviews. It's it's about just about everything else in my life. Like mm -hmm. even going to the grocery store. Sometimes I'm like, ah, you know, can I cancel it this week and you know order it online or something? Oh my gosh. So how? So this is interesting because I actually had a journalist on my show, Catherine Shu, last week, and and yeah. I was saying like, you're a journalist because she has this too. Your whole job is to call people up and like ask them questions. Yeah. Let's let's play a little bit of that. How does it make you feel when? You know that these powerful people that you're talking about are people who hope to be powerful, right, who are just starting out with startups, will only talk to you off the record about their anxiety and depression because they don't want to be seen as weak. Like, does that, does that hurt you as someone who has her own mental health challenges? How do you feel about that? I, you know, I think one of the things I was just actually thinking about before recording the interview is, um, before talking to you, is that I... Ha still get really anxious before interviews myself because I like all the time like um, even if it's just going to be a 15 minute call and it's you know a type of story that I've done like 
you know, hundreds of times before, literally, I still get really nervous. Mm. One of the things I always remember is that, especially for people who are a very early stage startup, you know, maybe some somebody who's just raised angel or seed or even like, you know, a series A, they're probably more nervous about talking to me than I am to them. It seems like there are people who work in fields like journalism or they do public speaking, even though they may have deep social anxiety, because for them, they figure like the gains outweigh the costs, like they're doing this thing that they loved in spite of how it hurts them. And and like, that's what I get from your show a lot, that there's always this compromise being made. Oh, my gosh, Nick, I'm kind of having a moment because I, I feel like you just hit upon something that I didn't really realize. But I think that's 100 percent true. And I think that's where the achiever piece comes in and Mm. why I feel this work is important, because it doesn't mean that you don't do the thing, right? And, and I think that's what, what you're saying and, 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 and what you're doing in your work. Like, you persist, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, it, it, when you have anxiety, but you are driven by your work and your work is meaningful to you, or you have depression or whatever challenge, you feel the horrible feelings, you want to cancel, you want to hide under your covers, but you don't, and, and you manage through it. And um, I think it's really important to hear those stories. In The Anxious Achiever, Maura interviews big-name professionals about how mental health affects your work. She's talked to CEOs, politicians, professors, and even celebrities like actress Gabrielle Union. For me, success has to look like being a real advocate and really being on the front lines and figuring out a way of addressing my anxiety in the face of being a truth teller. Well, how do you? Um, I mean, how do you besides, I mean, I mean, imagine you, you work out a lot, but like... <laughs> yeah, where, I work out a lot, but I also put live all those feelings? with... Yeah. With my therapist, yeah, <laughs> with with professional, you know, caregivers, and 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 this is, you know, and this is the 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 privilege that I that I enjoy. I have the means to to go to therapy, you know, more than once a week mm-hmm. if necessary. Mm-hmm. That I can Skype my therapist. That I can not just therapists, um, any range of of mental health care providers, and understanding that privilege even more. Um, in a time of, of widespread crisis, that we need those people who who have the ability and the privilege to speak out, to speak out. If you have, an, have the ability to address um, your your anxiety, and for me to address my PTSD, to address um, you know depression, um, and still fight, we need you. Maura didn't think she'd end up making a podcast. She got her start in the early days of the internet doing marketing and consulting for politicians. Soon, she became a political blogger and appeared on cable news as a pundit. But it didn't work out. She hated the spotlight, and she says her clinical depression helped torpedo that line of work. But what did stick around was her passion for creating community and using her voice for good. In 2011, she founded her company, Women Online, an award-winning digital marketing and strategy firm. And that's still her day job. I don't do my podcast all the time. It's seasonal, so I do it twice a year, which is nice. And, yeah. um, you know, like I'm about to start writing another book. And so I have to figure out, like, do I go on leave with the company? Do I yeah. do what I did with my last book, like wake up at 5 a.m.? I think all of us who are juggling, a, I hate the word side hustle, but I, I guess that's what it is. 
You yeah. know, we. I, I also have a complicated relationship with that term. <laughs> oh my gosh! Tell me. Yeah. It's so. I mean, it's it's sort of part of this larger sort of framework and discourse of. I just like I'm not into the hustle culture because mm. it's it's very male. It's very it's very white, and it's also very commoditizing. You know, <laughs> like everything has to be a commodity or in some in some way, and that, well, that it, always kind of runs runs me the wrong way a little bit. One of my weirdest claims to fame is in 2013, I coined a term entrepreneurship porn. And oh, that was um, you. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think that's exactly it. And it's it's you're performing. You know, mm. you're you're performing entrepreneurship. You're performing ambition. But that's not really the truth. Anyone who does it really knows that it sucks and it's really hard and it's not glamorous. Why do you think people are so intent on that performance of corporate life? Like I really like I really don't get it. Uh, I think it's painful and it feels super demeaning to hear people talk about you know, how long they can go without sleep because they're so committed to their work or whatever. Where do you think that mindset comes from? I think it's very American. I really do. I'll, I'll never forget living in the UK for many years and mm. people being like, I was at the pub all night and then I went clubbing and I don't do any work. <laughs> and oh, but by the way, I aced, you know, and, and I thought, gosh, this is so weird. <laughs> like, why aren't they bragging about how late they stayed up studying? I think it's a it's a it's a very interesting kind of American thing mm. that that the early bird gets the worm, you know, and it's amplified by social media. I, I wish I could go back in time sometimes and see what it was like to be a small business owner before Instagram, mm. uh, you know, before Fast Company magazine, before hustle culture. I I I don't know. I I think that it's a bad habit we've all gotten ourselves into, mm. and it's got. To stop, and my only silver lining that I see in the pandemic is that it will force a reset on some of the hustle bullshit. You know, it has to. Oh, I, I'm not even sure if that happened. Like, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic lockdowns, folks were like, "Oh, this is the best time to write a novel or whatever." You know, like, I can barely get out of bed, uh, let alone like write a novel. Uh, I feel like that was that was that lot of discourse at the beginning. I know, but that I think that passed now that we're on month 84 of the <laughs> pandemic. You know, it's weird because you'll understand this as a small business owner and as someone who basically is your own brand. You know, if I don't create a little bit of FOMO in people, hmm. then they don't want to listen to me or maybe they won't pay me to come speak or they don't think I'm important. It's this inner dialogue and I struggle with it. Like, I have to look like I'm super cool and out there and amazing, even though I'm sitting in my suburban home office, like not talking to anyone all day, because I need to create the illusion. And I think, I think that that's part of what we think entrepreneurship is. But yeah, it's hard. So how did you figure out how to navigate that corporate professional world? I think I just got older. Hmm. Tell you me know? a little bit about that. <laughs> I, I'm um, asking this as a slightly younger person. Yeah. <laughs> I'm eagerly looking to to get to, I suppose, your place in life. But, um, <laughs> but, but how have you figured that out? Like, how? What, what did you figure out? I, I think I figured out that it wasn't making me happy. It was making me way worse. And, and when you live with mental illness, you have to be a bit rigorous and serious about taking care of yourself. Hmm. And for me, I realized that I had to take care of myself, you know. I had responsibility for small children as well, and, and mm. that's a real wake-up call. But even without the kids, it was like, you know, Maura, you can be this person that you always thought you should be, and you're just going to keep quitting those jobs, and you're going to keep crying in the bathroom, and you are going to be miserable. Mm. Or you can, like, 
take a little bit of care about yourself and do a little bit less and see what happens. Mm. And the funny thing is it actually, it worked. (laughs) (laughs) I think part of where I still am is this apocalyptic notion of like, if I do less, things will fall apart. That's your anxiety. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I remember hearing it from a bunch of different people. And it, it kept coming up in the interviews that you've, that you've had. It, and I, and it, it feels like such a universal feeling. But, um, you know, at the risk of kind of turning this to like a life hacker uh, <laughs> article or something, what are your personal practices for slowing down? You know, I spend a lot of time by myself, even before the pandemic, because I work by myself at home. So I, I'm on calls and stuff, but I'm in my head a lot. Mm. And that can be bad and it can be good. So if I'm in my head too much, I need a way to reframe. Sometimes quickly, I'll call a friend or a colleague. Mm. I'll go for a walk. If I'm in a a sort of feeling bad about myself and underachieving funk, I'll like write something nice or endorse someone on LinkedIn. Like I'll try to do something nice for someone else. Mm. So I get out of my self-pity. I think I've learned to try to manage my rumination time. And I don't know if that resonates with you or anyone. Oh, that definitely does. Tell tell me a bit more. (laughs) You know, it's really hard. If I wake up in the morning and I can tell, oh, man, I'm feeling bad. I'm feeling poor. I'm feeling broke. I'm feeling anxious. I get out of the house. I try to exercise or I'll Mm. go go to the grocery store, the hardware store, anything to break the cycle. I think that it's really, really important to, like, look inside your head. And if you're in a bad sort of spinny, stewing place, Mm. try to break it. Because anxiety is not a reliable narrator, right? Not a good place to be. And so that's really important. And I also know that, like, I need a lot of alone time, but I need – that a phone call can also change my day. You know, that's the weird thing about social anxiety. You dread it and and you're scared and you you don't want to have that phone call. Hmm. But once you're talking to someone, you feel good and and you hang up the phone call and you feel better than you did before. And sort of remembering that, Hmm. coaching myself and saying, you want to cancel this call, but you love this work. This is important. You're going to feel really energized after. I know you don't want to record this podcast because you're feeling really down today, but you're going to feel better afterwards. It's almost like going to the gym, right? You don't want to go, but you're going to feel better. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up, what Mora learned from an NBA star. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. 
So I mentioned this earlier, but so much of my self-esteem uh, is tied to my career. And I'm curious, Maura, how do you build your self-esteem at this point in your life? Hmm. Gosh, that's a hard one, isn't it? I've sort of accepted that I'm a little bit neurotic and anxious and low self-esteem by nature. Hmm. But I've also really gotten better at not listening to other people and having a much stronger eternal compass. And it's the most wonderfully liberating thing in the world, honestly. Mm. <laughs> um, and and I feel free. And I, and I do think some of it is getting older. But for me, it was really about, this is so corny, but like doing the work that I love and accepting that I may never be famous. I may never have a number one best-selling book, but that's okay. I'm still going to keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's also it's also having a basic sort of, this is, again, corny, a basic sort of <laughs> like moral code, you know, like this is what I stand for in life. Here is what being a good person means to me. And you know what? I'm ambitious. This is why I'm ambitious. It's about what I want to do and the mark I want to make on the world, not about, for me, I had to let go of years and years of my parents and my coaching and and always being the person that I thought I, I was supposed to be and just saying like, you know what? This is this is my code. This is mm. my ethos. I'm okay. Uh, what has been your favorite conversation on the show so far? Oh, God. They're all like my children, you know? <laughs> you love all your children equally? I love my show. I, I don't know mm. if you feel this way or if you talk to other podcast hosts who feel this way, but like, I love my show. It is something that I have created from its infancy with a mm. lot of help. But like when I put a podcast into the world, it, it does truly feel like mine. And and that's like, it's a very special feeling. So when people don't like it, it's it really hurts me. Mm. I don't know. It, it it's I feel so personal about it. It's weird. I cannot say that I have a favorite guest and I'm not just ducking the question. <laughs> well, then uh, let me reframe it then. What, what is the most surprising Thing that you'll learn from the show so far? I think I've learned the prevalence of social anxiety. Even more How's, so than before you started the show. A hundred percent. How much people are truly battling their will to go into the arena of work and success every day. And I think that everyone needs to understand that, whether you're 19 or you're 40 and you're like walking into that room and you feel like you don't belong. Hmm. I can't tell you how many people who are so impressive. I mean, I just talked to Kevin Love from the NBA. The guy hmm. makes $31 million a year. He's, He's a legend. He's been very public about his, his depression, yeah. Yes. I mean, he is scared to talk. He has social anxiety. I mean, this guy should be a king, right? As athletes and as an athlete, we're looked at as superheroes. I know that from growing up and you know, having these superstars in my eyes like Charles Barkley or uh, Shaquille O'Neal or even, you know, before that with Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, I'm looking like these guys are indestructible. Nothing can hurt them. Growing up as a young man, I thought to expose that it was just going to put me in a, a light where people were going to look at me as weak. Uh, not only my teammates or my counterparts, but, you know, as I got older, it was, uh, you know, general managers and ownership and things that were going to really affect my livelihood, let alone the general public. So for me, it was something that before I press send on my first article with the Players Tribune, I was really, 
I guess scared would be the right word and, and uneasy and had a lot of anxiety, but you know, it was, it just came a point in time and, and a perfect storm for me in that year that I just didn't want to live in the shadows anymore. I like actually really like to talk to really successful white men on the show because I feel like that's ironically, although I don't think we need to hear from straight white men in other <laughs> arenas, I feel yeah. like in the area of mental health, because yeah. they still hold so much power, it's good to hear from them. And so, yeah, like when I hear someone who seems like they should have so much power, basically express that they feel powerless, which is what social anxiety kind of is, it, it blows my mind every time. So you're a mother of three children? Mm -hmm. When you think about the working world that they're, they're going to sort of grow up into, um, how do you... Do you, do you talk to them about this kind of thing or, or do, you, do you sort of like try to set their expectations a certain way or, or think about the, the world that they're going to enter in, in a couple of years? I worry a lot about my kids. I see how their connectivity is so totally engaging and so instant. My, my tween has just gone into the world of group texting. and Oh, man, he, big, big yeah. move big move. He feels the need to like be on that text. It is his social capital, right? Mm. And I just, I worry about that. I can't quite relate to it. I think that these are kids who, um, it's funny, they, they all want to start their own YouTube channel. And <laughs> the overprotective mother in me is like, no, you're too young. But they're like, mom, you're all over the internet. Like, <laughs> what's up, mom? Like, you have a podcast. You're on Twitter. You're on Instagram. You're always sharing photos of me. Like, what's up with that? You're a hypocrite. <laughs> and they're right. And so I realize that they sort of have to become brands of the, their own in life. Yeah. And it's very weird. It's very weird to have parents, both my husband and I, sort of earn our living online and to be raising children in this age and have such conflicting feelings about it all yeah. is confusing. Yeah. Do you have like a dream guest, like somebody that you really, really want to talk to that you haven't been able to book yet? Well, okay. So if you really want my dream guest, mm -hmm. it's Oprah. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's think big here because one of the things that I that I love about Oprah, she's very open about the fact that she's an introvert and mm -hmm. um, that she really gears up for her work and it doesn't come naturally to her, mm -hmm. but that... The skills, and she's super anxious, and, and she has developed and channeled those skills into her incredible empathy, right? Her social radar, mm. her power. And I want every person who's, who's anxious and feels like they don't have power to think of themselves as like a, a could-be Oprah, you know? Like, <laughs> like if I could just manage this and channel this, oh my gosh, I could be Oprah. <laughs> oh, man. I could, I, I, it just gets me so excited. Oh, that's a so. that's a really good answer. <laughs> I, I didn't know that she she was she considered herself an introvert. That oh yeah, I In feel fact, like there's a lot of people who I'd be surprised consider themselves an introvert for sure. Yes, yes, and in fact. I have a whole list of celebrities. <laughs> who's, who's the most surprising introvert to you? <laughs> well, I, I think the most interesting thing is the amount of comedians who are oh, that makes a ton really, of sense. yeah, who are yeah. really introverted and really, really socially anxious. Yeah, you had John Moen to show recently, and, and I did. That's all. I, that's his entire sort of like that's that his understanding. Shtick. Yeah, yeah, because of course, I mean, the truth is. Anybody can go out there and wow the room. It's not about whether you're an introvert or whether you're anxious or even whether, frankly, you're depressed. Yeah. It's about skill and practice. It's a leadership skill. 
Man, it's I'm I'm just I'm like marveling at the extent to which like the pathway to enlightenment in some ways you, you kinda have to like bushwhack through the corny. Like <laughs> I, my my entire like sort of cynical millennial brain is contracting against that, but it's but that's absolutely You just have to hang really out valuable. with Gen Xers, Nick. <laughs> I, th- I thought I thought your entire generation was about being cool. <laughs> Are you joking? <laughs> we gave up being cool in 1999, but oh, you know. Oh man! <laughs> well, Mora, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate this. Oh, thank you. It's an honor. Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash servantofpod. The show is produced by Andreas Wahe, Jessica Alpert, and John Parati at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant Apart is a production of Alliast Studios. Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.